Jesus is your living hope. And as we continue in our, our walk through the book of John, uh, we'll get to maybe see a little bit more of why that is so true. So turn with me to John chapter 5. Uh, we're looking at the first 18 verses. As we see Jesus continues to do, as he said in chapter 4, verse 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so as we John relates different events from Jesus' life, filling in a lot of ways, filling in gaps from the other four Gospels. He selects ones that, that demonstrate that Jesus is busy doing the work of his Father. And he is doing things that maybe don't make sense to your average person. Uh, because as he talked in chapter 3, uh, verse 8, he is doing things in perfect uh Fellowship, perfect communion with the Spirit. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 8, remember he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So in a lot of ways, the things that Jesus does, you wouldn't have, have said, oh, well, that's, that's just the way everyone else would have done it. No, he's, he's following the plan that he and the Father and the Spirit have laid out. And he ends up in places we wouldn't have expected. So follow along with me, please, as I read verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 5. It says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into a pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, You wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, and picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is a Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. 
For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So we have Jesus changing location again at the beginning of this section, as, as we had in the last section, where he was just leaving Jerusalem in the Judea area, uh, going north. And so we're not told which feast uh, he goes to Jerusalem for here. Could be the Passover again. And if it is, then John just chose a few very select things that happened over the course of a full year. And that's possible. Um, and he left Jerusalem, if you remember, because of God's timing. Remember, there was, there was all kinds of, of, of notice that he was drawing more people to himself than John the Baptist was. And he left because of that, as we were told earlier. Now he's going back. Why? Well, because it's the Father's timing. It's when he is supposed to be there. So now he returns for the same reason he left. God's work will take place here, and Jesus will be doing the work of his Father, that which he said is his food, that which sustains him, right? And, and he goes to the, to the pool of Bethesda there in verses 2 through 4. And, uh, Anne, if you can go ahead and put up a map, the map on the slide there. Um, here, here's a, 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 this is not the pool itself, but it's somebody's recreation of what what they believe it looked like. And they have found a place they're pretty sure is the Pool of Bethesda. It's just north of the temple area. And you can see there the, the water. You can see the uh, it has five porticos and that there's four all the way around each side. And then one that goes through the middle, it's actually two pools. And the people who were sick would, would sit in those colonnaded areas out of the sun while they're waiting as, as for what, what uh, they expect there to happen. Uh, one thing, go, go ahead and go to the next uh, uh, slide. Uh, here, here is, um, this is called the Sheep's Pool on this map, but the Pool of Bethesda. This area right here is the temple complex, the actual temple building being right here in the middle. And you notice that from the Sheep's Pool or the Pool of Bethesda, he would come through, what, the Sheep Gate. Seems appropriate for the Lamb of God enter the temple through the sheep gate, doesn't it? But here Jesus is going to the right place at the right time to do his Father's work. And we have a description there in verses 2 and 3 of, of what went on at the Pool of Bethesda. Um, verse 3 in particular uh, tells us that in these lay a multitude who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. So you have all these people who have physical problems. Uh, the word literal for, literally for sick used through this, this passage and usually in Scripture means without strength. So there's a lot of different reasons why they find themselves without the strength that they need. Illnesses and, and being physically injured and, and atrophied and, and different things like that. And so they've, they've built this place up uh, because this is a place they believed they could go and be miraculously healed. Now, you might have noticed when I was reading through John chapter 5 that I was reading something that maybe wasn't in your Bible, or it was set apart with uh, brackets, or it was down in, in the margin of your Bible. 
uh, because the, the last part of verse 3, uh, where it talks about waiting for the moving of the waters, down through verse 4, are not in all of the old manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, which leads some to believe that maybe it wasn't, John didn't actually put that in there, but was added in by scribes who were trying to give better context and explanation to people who were reading his gospel, and, and that's possible. And then over time, it just got incorporated into the actual writing of John. Um, we don't really know for sure, and that's why in some of your uh, some of your translations, you don't have that. That it's a it's really a helpful explanation, and it fits with what verse seven says when he gives the, the explanation about the, the the man why he's there and what he's expecting and and what he can't do, and so it, it gives us at the very least, a good explanation of <clears throat> what pe why people were there. What were they thinking? Why were the, all these sick people laying around this pool? And, and it's a very good logical explanation in that they, they were wa waiting for the water to move. And then the legend or the story or the instructions for that pool were was that an angel would come and stir up the water. If you were the first one in, you got the healing. Anybody who came second, sorry, not enough healing there for you. Right? But that's what they were expecting. Whether that was the reality of what happened there or not, we're not told. But it is a good logical explanation of why the people gathered, what their thoughts were. And, and this pool was a large pool. It was a very deep pool. And people gathering around all built up, gives you the idea that at least there was some sort of a, um, some credibility to the story to keep people from coming back. We don't know exactly. And that's not the point of the story. Whether that actually was happening, whether that was actually true, was, is it possible for God to heal people that way? Sure. God can do anything, right? Um, do we have to buy into the idea that the, the, that the angel stirred the waters and people were healed to get the point of this? No, but that's what people were expecting. That's what they were thinking. But the point is that there was a man there, verse 5. He was there, he'd been ill or literally without strength for 38 years. By his own description later on, he's, he's unable to get to the water. So his, he has a problem with mobility. Apparently he can't walk, or at least if he can walk, it's, it's very limited, or he has to drag himself. After all those years of being that way, here, here's a person whose, whose muscles, no, allow, no doubt, were atrophied. He, he would fit under that, that description earlier on in the chapter of being withered. Ever seen maybe your own body, if you've, you've not been able to walk for, for quite a while or use a particular part of your body? What happens? After a while, it, it kind of shrinks down, right? It atrophies, it becomes not so useful, sometimes not useful at all because of a lack of use. So here we have a man, 38 years, nearly four decades, being in this condition of being without strength, being unable to, to move himself from one place to another. And Jesus approaches him. Remember, the description is that there were a whole bunch of people. People came there in large numbers, and it was a feast time. So I'm guessing the place was more crowded than usual. Jesus approaches this man, 
He's been there for 38 years. Well, not necessarily been there, but he's been in this condition for 38 years. Walks up to him and asks the most outrageous question. It says, when Jesus saw him there, he knew that it had already been there in that t- location for a long time. There's, let's start there. Jesus knew. And the word, the word in Greek for he experientially knew that he had been there for a long time. How did he know that? Well, it's the same way that he knew that Nathaniel had been sitting under the fig tree and praying to God. The same way that he knew that the woman who was at the well had been married five times and was living with a man that was not her husband. He knew because he is God the Son, because he was in perfect communion with the Father, that he was working completely in unison with the Holy Spirit. Right? He knew who this man was. He knew the desperateness of his situation. His condition was known to Jesus. But again, why this one out of so many others? And then he asks him that outrageous question. Do you wish to get well? Unfortunately, we don't have tone of voice or expressions on faces here, right? So we don't know. I mean, was he really sarcastic? What what kind of question is that to ask me? Why do you think I'm here? We don't know. But Jesus doesn't ask questions for no purpose. He doesn't ask questions just to hear his own voice. The obvious answer was, yeah, he wanted to get well because he'd, he'd come there many times over the years, according to the tense of the verb. He'd been there again and again and again. And Jesus wants him to think about what is the source of your hope? And what are the consequences if you actually get what you want? What would he do with a new life of health? Where would his focus be? Like the woman at the well, the royal official in Cana, his focus at the moment was probably entirely on the physical things. Because in verse 7, his answer reveals his heart. He says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. What's he focused on? He's focused on the process, right? He's focused on this legend or this, this could even be a pagan practice that's kind of been made into a more religious Jewish kind of thing. Whatever the, it is, he's focused on the physical. I can't get there. I have no help. Nobody can pick me up and toss me in the water before somebody else gets there first, right? He can't do it himself. And so in his view, really, even though he's here with the hope of getting well, he really has no hope, does he? There's always going to be someone who can get there before he does. And his focus is entirely on a human level. And so Jesus in verse 8 acts, and this is different than the other situations we've seen. Just Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. He just makes a very simple command, a very direct command, doesn't engage the man any further. He doesn't try to draw more out of him what he's thinking. I think what Jesus is saying is you need a good shock treatment here to get out of your wrong way of thinking. And immediately, 
immediately we're told the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, the other gospel writers use this word immediately quite a bit, especially when they're talking about Jesus healing. That when he heals, it just happened right away. But John only uses it in this incident related to a healing. He uses it in other contexts, but as far as healing, he just gives us this one spot. It happened right away. But think about what that would mean for a man in this condition. Remember, he'd been 38 years without strength. And so strength had to suddenly, immediately be restored. What does that feel like? To all of a sudden have the strength to stand. Muscles had to be instantly renewed or even recreated after all those decades of atrophy, right? You know, if you, you haven't been walking and somebody says, stand up and walk, and you're, you know, your, your legs are all shrunken, that's not very kind, right? That would be painful, that would be embarrassing, that would be frustrating. What about your sense of balance if you haven't been walking or strong all that time? Are you just going to get up and walk and actually get somewhere? Not only that, but what about muscle memory? The process of walking is not that simple, is it? You'll, you've discovered this if you've had surgery or had a, had a broken limb or something like that and you aren't able to walk for a while. Your coordination, your muscle memory, it's like you have to think about the simplest little things. And so if you, are, you have a certain condition and you have a successful surgery, what happens after the surgery? Probably months of physical therapy, right? So you can remember how to walk correctly so that you're, you can retrain what's going on in, from your brain to your legs to the nerves to the muscle memory that's going on. But it happened instantly in this man. Not only was the physical ability created within his legs and the rest of his body. Probably your back, right? Everything's all connected, right? If you haven't been able to walk, oh, you probably have messed up things in other places too. It says immediately all those things came together. He stood up and began, picked up his, his bed. Think about that if you've been unable to stand or to walk for all that time. He was not only able to walk, but to carry something. It happened immediately, it says. Is that too hard for Jesus? Now, remember he did it a long time ago with a man named Adam. Created him. Immediately he was able to walk and to function and do everything that a man can do. I didn't have to have muscle memory for remembering how he'd learned how to, to, to crawl and walk and everything as a baby. No, he, he did it immediately. Okay. And then Jesus, if you jump ahead to verse 13, while the man's picking up and starting to walk, Jesus just slips away. This man doesn't even know who Jesus is, doesn't know his name, doesn't know what his claims are, doesn't know anything else. He just quietly slips into the crowd and disappears. And then we get this statement that's full of, of foreshadowing. He says, and it was the Sabbath day when he did these things. This, there's a whole other aspect of this healing that's about to, to be opened up and continue through until the day that Jesus is crucified. Jesus is, 
has gotten a ball rolling, it's not going to stop. And this will get to the heart of the religious leaders' legalistic twisting of God's law. So God does an act of grace and mercy for this man, but at the same time presents an, an opportunity for the religious leaders of Israel to stop and think about what they're doing, to stop and think about their processes. And so verses 10 through 13, we get the reaction. So this man gets up, he starts walking with his, with his, his pallet or his bed, right? Verse 10 says, so the Jews, talking about the Jewish religious leaders, were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now, the, this man would stick out, wouldn't he? I mean, for one thing, he might be jumping and leaping and praising God like the man in Acts, right? Suddenly I can walk after all. We don't know. John doesn't give us much of a description there. But he might have a little bit of spring to his step because of the change that's happened, right? But not only that, he's carrying something on the Sabbath during a feast time through crowds of people and nobody else is carrying anything. Okay? Going to stick out like a sore thumb. Here he comes with his bed. You wonder if, wonder if, the, if the crowd didn't maybe part like, get away from this guy, right? And he stuck out to the religious leaders because here was someone who was doing what they had said, don't do. Here's someone in their, from their point of view who is breaking the Sabbath. He was carrying something from one place to another. Now, the Sabbath commands of the Old Testament law were not all that detailed, but the traditions of the religious leaders in Israel were very detailed. Whereas the scripture was, was pointing particularly to carrying on their daily work, things that they did for a living need to be set aside and they needed to rest. The religious leaders had, had put layer upon layer of other rules and traditions on top of God's law, trying to think of ways that a person might work and might break the Sabbath law against working. They had 39 different classifications of ways that you could work on the Sabbath. They had many examples that had been thoroughly discussed and debated. That was what they did for recreation. Well, if you do such and such on the Sabbath, is that, is that breaking the Sabbath law or not? And they would love to go back and forth and debate and, and try to figure out if that really was or not. And one of the things that they had determined through all that process was that carrying an object from what they would call one domain to another was forbidden. So if you had something in your home and you carried it out into a public area, that was forbidden. Or if you carried something that you used in your work and took it into your private life, that was forbidden. And so here there's this man in the street. Obviously, he's going from one domain to another. So what he's doing is forbidden. And the problem is that they had forgotten the purpose of the Sabbath in the first place, which Jesus puts really succinctly in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, in another dispute he had with the religious leaders about this issue. Matthew chapter 2. Twenty-seven and twenty-eight said, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, 
and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He showed that you missed the point. God gave to mankind the gift of a day of resting from all of the regular work in order to be revitalized, in order to be renewed, in order to bring his focus back around on the God who gives him the ability to have what he needs, to be able to work and provide for himself, to to rely on God that one day a week I can set this aside and you'll still care for me. You'll still provide me with the ability to keep on bringing in what's necessary. Jesus took, took this man and put him right into the path of these religious leaders so they would have an opportunity to think through their attitudes about Sabbath and about people. They'd gotten so wrapped up in the law aspect of it and the legalistic aspect of it that they'd turned it, here's how you get right with God. You don't work on the Sabbath. Jesus said, no, the Sabbath is about God being gracious A man's body has been made new. He's been released from the long captivity of this weakness, this being without strength. Will they rejoice in what God has done? Or will they become angry because their man-made traditions have been ignored? Was the Sabbath given to make a man right with God? Or to recognize the goodness of God and his care for man? What he's done here, carrying his bed, is actually probably the most restful and refreshing thing he'd ever done in his life, right? It was a rest from that sitting and laying and being unable to do anything. And on the Sabbath, God said, let me give you a break, a permanent break from being without strength in this life. And so they ask him, they talk to him, they accuse him. And he answers, verse 11. He answered them, Who made the man, or he who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. John doesn't give us too many details. He doesn't give us commentary on the man's motives. And many people find fault with the man for saying, Well, it was that man that cured me. That's why I'm carrying it. But on the other hand, isn't that really, isn't he just operating under the authority of the one he says, oh, This guy must have some authority. Look at what he just did to me. He's just operating under the authority of the one that he obeyed in order to do that. He obeyed this stranger, and he was healed. He had more, really more reason to trust Jesus than these religious leaders, didn't he? Jesus wants to direct his thinking going, forward. And he wants to direct the thinking of these religious leaders as well. And so verse 14, man has this this interaction with them, right? And he doesn't know who Jesus was. All he can say is the one who healed me. But Jesus isn't done with them. Verse 14 tells us, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Jesus took the time to go and find him. Remember, it was a feast time. The the temple courts would have been packed with people. Yet Jesus went, sought him out, found him. Maybe he's still carrying his bed and sticking out really well. I don't know. 
even if he wasn't, Jesus went and found him. And he's now in the place that represented God's presence in the midst of the Jewish people. And of course, he wasn't far away, right? He's right outside the sheep gate there. But it would make sense for him to go in there and to worship and to praise God. Presumably, that's what he's doing in there. That's what his purpose for being in the temple was. Now, Jesus wants to direct his thinking as he moves forward, and he says, you've been made well. And the tense of the verb means it's something that's happened at a point of time that has ongoing results. So in other words, this isn't just some cheap trick. This isn't some sort of an illusion like some people do. But the healing was real, and the healing was going to be ongoing. But what are you going to do now with your life now that you've been given this? Now that Jesus has given you life, sir, what will you do with that life? You get the feeling Jesus asks you the same question? If you've entrusted yourself to him, if your sins have been forgiven, if you've been given eternal life and a relationship with him, what are you going to do with that life? Are you going to live it for him or are you going to say, oh, so nice that I have all this benefit from God. Now I can go do anything I want to. Now I can go and indulge my, my fleshly desires. Now I can just take what I want from others. Doesn't make sense, does it? And it didn't make sense for this man either. That's why Jesus says to him, don't sin anymore. Turn away from sin, or you may end up in a worse condition than you were for 38 years. What does that mean? Does that mean the man was an invalid for 38 years because of some sin that he had done? Could be. Our sins do have consequences, right? Sometimes we, we act in sin and, and something terrible happens to us as a result of our sin. That does happen sometimes. We also live in a sin-cursed world. That because of all the sin in the world, bad things happen to people, right? And he says, there are worse things that can come from not going God's way than being an invalid for 38 years. Sin always has consequences, and there's an ultimate consequence. If you are, you are convinced that you are going to take care of your own sin. In fact, if you, let's go back to the end of chapter 3. Verse 36, Jesus laid it out very clearly there. He said, he who believes in the Son has, what, eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Is that worse than 38 years of being an invalid? Absolutely. He says you need to turn away from your sin and seek out the forgiveness. Now, he doesn't play it out for him at this point, does he? He just calls him to turn away from his sin. I believe he's going to provide the opportunity for him down the road, probably through the apostles, to receive forgiveness of his sins, to receive the gift of eternal life. But at this point, he's saying, look it. What is it that you really need? You can walk now. You can go to work now. You can go be with your family and friends now in an easier way. But what is that if you don't turn away from your sin and seek forgiveness from God? Well, it's just a more comfortable trip to the gates of hell. It's a more comfortable trip 
to eternal punishment. Did this man believe Jesus? Did he put his faith in Jesus and receive that forgiveness and eternal life? John doesn't tell us. Very little commentary on what this man is thinking. But maybe Jesus is doing what he talked about to the disciples. He's planting the seed and someone else will harvest. Maybe on the day of Pentecost, when, when Peter preaches that great sermon about faith in Christ that brings you forgiveness, he was one of the 5,000. We don't know. But Jesus was graciously interceding in his life and giving him a shocking day to stop and think about what truly mattered. But at the same time, Jesus is doing something with the nation. He's doing something with the religious leaders. And in verses 15 through 18, this great conflict really takes shape between himself and the legalistic rulers of Israel. Verse 15 says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who has made him well. And again, we don't know his heart, his motivation, his reason for doing it. Just stated fact here. These were people that he, he probably had great respect for. They're the ones he had looked up to as religious leaders all this time. And so the fact that he went and told them wasn't, nece wasn't necessarily a betrayal of Jesus. It's just, oh, you guys want to know the man who was able to heal me after laying there for all those years? You should get to know him. Maybe that was his motivation. We don't know. But verse 16 then goes on and gives us the, re the reaction. It says, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And the doing these things is, is a verb that means repeatedly. Jesus kept on challenging them. Uh, we'll see examples in, in uh, John and in the other Gospels of Jesus healing on the Sabbath to make them stop and think. What's good to do on the Sabbath? Jesus and his disciples, in the incident in Mark, they were just pulling grain off the stalks. Well, they decided if you take the grain off, you rub it together to get the hulls off, you're harvesting. If you pop it in your mouth, well, you're harvesting. That's work. Therefore, you are guilty before the law of Moses. Jesus is bringing to their attention again, what's this all about? Why are you here? What are you doing? And then verse 17, Jesus answered them and said, here's where he really brings, brings this whole conflict to a head. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself what's he, equal with God. Jesus says, I'm, I'm working all the time because my father is working all the time. And, and all, even the Jewish leaders believed that God was always doing some sort of work. They, they, two, two things, they believed he was always doing the work of judging and always doing the work of creating life. And what Jesus will say after this will emphasize those things. But for now, just notice that the point is here is if they condemned him for working on the Sabbath because God is his own father, they would be condemning God for working on the Sabbath. For the same reason that God could work on the Sabbath, Jesus could because he's just doing the work of his father. But he says God is his own father, not just our father, not just God is like a father to us, but he tells them God is my father. 
Therefore, I can do the things that my Father does. We work completely together. We work completely in union. And in Jewish thought, the one who is the son of a father is equal to the father. If someone's son in that kind of position came to you and you rejected them, it's as if though you've rejected the father. If you accepted them, it's as though you've rejected their father. Their words are as if the father was speaking to you. And that's exactly the message Jesus wanted to get across and it was exactly accepted by them, not accepted, but recognized by them and rejected. Now they wanted to kill him for blasphemy, for saying wrong things about God. That's where they're going to take this. Even though they've seen this amazing miracle happen, saying, no, our own thoughts, our own traditions are more important than the truth of who you are. See, Jesus came to save those who would believe in him, who would entrust themselves to him. And oftentimes he has to bring an abrupt change or a direct challenge to the ways that we're thinking and the patterns we're living in. Had that happen? I hope so, even though it's not pleasant all the time. But God will bring things into our lives and say, stop, pay attention, look at me. But he did this with the man at the pool. He did this with the religious leaders. And how, do, how we respond to him determines the course of our future. We can join him in what he's doing, or we can go against him and end up somewhere worse than we were before he got our attention. In the case of unbelief, the worst is enduring God's wrath for ourselves rather than letting Jesus' death cover that for us. But if we're already believers, we may end up having new life, but wasting all of our, the amazing benefits he's given us on knowing Jesus on ourselves. Just living for, oh, this is what I want. This is what feels good to me. Uh, I think this is a good way to go. Sometimes God comes and gives us a little tap alongside the head, right? Sometimes he drops us down to our knees so we can stop and say, in Jesus, I have so much. And he wants me to use that to head down a road that brings his greatest glory and brings what was truly good for me. But the choice then he lays down before us. How will you go? Will you go with me? Or are you just going to keep on doing what you think is best? I've come to give you something far better, something you can rejoice in, something like a man, 38 years, an invalid suddenly walking, suddenly having complete mobility, suddenly having new lease on life. But just like him, we've got to choose what we do with that. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. You're so gracious. We pray that you would uh, keep on working in our hearts and lives. We, we thank you that you don't let us go on without catching our attention at times. And I pray that uh, your word would catch our attention today that we'd be willing to be changed and, and directed and we'd get on board with you and the things that you are doing, especially if we've given you our hearts already. We've already given you our lives and you have saved us and you've given us a new life. And Lord, if there's any here today that haven't entrusted themselves to you, I pray that you would 
just draw them in, that they would say yes to you and receive Jesus' gift of salvation, gift of eternal life, and a gift of a, of a life in fellowship with you now where, where they can choose what is ultimately best and good. Pray, praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name.